All right, we're in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Now, typically at this time, I will then read to you the passage, but I'm not going to do that tonight. We're going to read it in a little bit because I need to take some time tonight just to do a quick recap to make sure that we're all back together. It's been a few weeks since we've been together. Uh, and so I want to remind you, we left off in the middle of chapter 13. Uh, in our last study, we left off around the midpoint of the tribulation period. The beast, as we know, the Antichrist has been revealed for who he really is. As he steps into the Jewish temple and declares himself to be God and goes after the nation of Israel to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm going to ask you a question, though. Have you ever considered why Satan hates Israel so much? Have you ever thought about why Satan has wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and nations have been trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth for all of history? Why does Satan hate Israel so much? Any idea? They're definitely, that's part of it is because they're God's chosen people, but there's something even deeper than that. You see, as we've been looking at, and hopefully you're starting to see, God has made some promises, not only to the nation of Israel, but to the forefathers. And they're promises that have to do with the land and them being in the land. And how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been promised that God said to them, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. And remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never received the land, did they? They lived as strangers and sojourners in the land. When Abraham's wife Sarah died, he had to purchase a piece of property in order to bury her because it hadn't been given to them yet. But God simply said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Hebrews chapter 11 in two places actually says, these died never having received what was promised. But the scripture is very clear that God is actually going to fulfill his promises to Israel. And in the last days, he's going to gather them all back into the land and he's going to give to everything that he said he would do. And he himself is going to come back and live with them and set up his kingdom on this earth. Satan knows this. And Satan knows that or thinks if he can wipe Israel off the face of the earth or get them out of that land or divide that land, then possibly Jesus won't come back and set up his kingdom. And so that's part of what's going on. And so what I want to do real quick is I want to take you to Jeremiah 31. Have you put a bookmark in Revelation 11? We will get there tonight. That's the passage we're going to break down. But go with me to Jeremiah 31 and listen to verses 31 through 40, because there's a couple of things I really, really feel like God wants me to emphasize tonight as we kind of do our recap. Remember, Satan has gone after Israel through the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation, and he chases them out into the desert where God protects them for three and a half years and during the second half of the tribulation. But in Jeremiah 31, look at verses 31 through 40, and listen closely to what Scripture says. Behold, the days are coming, declares who? The Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, for a lot of years, Christians have been trying to say that the church is the new Israel and all this kind of stuff. And yes, we have been grafted in. And yes, the promises to Israel have been given to us now so that God would bless us and make Israel jealous. But look closely. What we're saying here is being spoken to Israel and Judah. And I'm glad it, at that time that the nation was split into two parts because that clarifies it for us. We're not Judah, are we? This is to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And this covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord. Has anybody caught on how many times God keeps saying, I'm the one saying this? Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Again, a little redundant, isn't it? We need it. When the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. Did you catch that? For who? For the Lord. The city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garib and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. And it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Folks, let me just ask you an honest question. Has this been fulfilled? No. It's a day that is still coming when the nation of Israel that is alive at that time, when God restores Israel and all, makes his promises and fulfilled them to them, and he himself lives on the earth with us. They'll all know me. You won't even need teachers. I'll be out of a job. But until then, I'm going to do my job and show you that we need to take the word of God seriously. Let me ask you a couple quick questions. When God said to the nation of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt, when he said to them, I'm going to take you at a certain time later, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and bring you into the land that I promised you, did he do it? Of course he did. And when, because of their disobedience, he sent them into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And he sent the prophets and he said, at a certain time in the future, I'm going to bring you out of Babylon and back into the land. Did he do it? then why do many Christians today say that there is no coming future kingdom where Jesus is going to be on this earth in that land? Because he said, I'm going to. At a time future, I'm going to bring you. And as you're going to see, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. He's going to say that I'm going to bring you from all the nations that I scattered you. Look closely at what it says in Ezekiel 36. And we'll look at verses 22 through 38. Therefore, say, the, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. By the way, do the, do the nations believe? Do they know that he's the Lord because of what he's done through Israel? Not yet. God goes on and says in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the awesome thing about us being in the church. God's given us these promises now. But it's to make Israel jealous if you read Romans chapter 11 and believe what God says. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21 when God told the nation of Israel way, way back then, you're going to go after other gods that aren't really gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and make you jealous. Keep reading. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. Boy, we keep hearing this, don't we? Thus says God, on that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with the flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Has this been fulfilled yet? No. Will it happen? Yes. And that's why Satan hates Israel so much and wants to get him out of the land. Because Satan knows that God's made all these promises that he's going to do this in the last days. And that when that happens, he's going to come back to the land himself and set up his kingdom. And that's why the world and everybody wants them out of that piece of property and say as it belongs to somebody else. Folks, we have to be serious. If, Like I said earlier, if God told the nation of Israel in Egypt, you're going to come out of there and go into your land, and he did it. He told them when they were in Babylon, you're going to come out of captivity and go into your land, and he did it. When he says this is going to happen in the future, it will happen. Don't spiritualize it. Take it literally. All right? Now, with that said, when we get back together, most likely next week, I'm going to probably introduce you to the false prophet. Where we left off, we were introduced to the beast and all that, and he revealed himself by stepping into the wing of the temple, declaring himself to be God, chased Israel out into the desert, and they're protected for three and a half years. Where we left off in Revelation 13, we're about to be introduced to the false prophet. He's going to cause everybody to worship the beast. We'll most likely get to that next week. We'll just see. But I really felt like we needed to stop in our study of Revelation 13 and come back to Revelation chapter 11 for tonight because something has been going on in our chronological study of the book of Revelation that I haven't dealt with yet. As you know, my desire in this study is to start with chapter 4 and the things that are going to take place after the rapture and to look at the book of Revelation in chronological order. That's why we're jumping around so much. But in doing so, it's kind of hard because a lot of things are overlapping. And it's really hard to say this, then this, then this, because 
that also is happening at that time, and this over here is also happening around then. And so we're going to go back and take a look at something that's been happening, I believe, since the beginning of the tribulation, and we'll deal with that tonight. Go to Revelation chapter 11 and look at verse, uh, verses 1 uh, through 14. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. And I will grant authority, look closely, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is that? By the way, has anybody caught on to the fact that God has been saying three and a half years in many different ways? 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time, 42 months. Has anybody thought about why? Why couldn't he just keep saying three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years? Let there be no confusion as to how long it will be. That's a really good point, Allison. So there'd be no confusion because otherwise we'd say, well, three and a half years means, no, three and a half years is three and a half years. And if you're not sure, 1,260 days means three and a half years. And if that doesn't really help you understand it because you're still spiritualizing it, 42 months is three and a half years. It's a literal time, folks. And God is illustrating it to us this way. And look at what he says. They're going to be prophesied for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now let me just stop real quick and say, by the way, this is why we already have gone to chapter 13, so that we could be introduced to who the beast is. You see, interestingly enough, if you're reading the book of Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 2, and 3, and so on, you would read chapter 11 about this beast that comes and kills them, and you'd say, we've not been introduced to who is this beast. But we've already been introduced if you go to chapter 13, and you know who this is. This is the Antichrist. All right? So the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Again, the Bible does use symbolic language, but whenever it does, it tells you what it symbolizes. What city is this that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt? It's Jerusalem. How do we know this? Where our Lord was crucified. So whenever the Bible uses symbolic language, it tells you what it symbolizes. So don't symbolize things that aren't clearly symbolized. All right? For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear, fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
All right. Let's begin to break this passage down a little bit. We see in verses 1 through 3 that John's told to measure the temple, the altar, and all those who worship there. Now, we need to take some time and, again, we remind you, if we had been faithful to read the whole Bible, if we had known the Old Testament, much, if not all, of Revelation wouldn't seem strange to us because as we see John giving a measuring stick, given a measuring stick by God and told to measure the temple, you would say, wait a minute, that's exactly what God did with Ezekiel. If you were to go back, we're not going to take the time to turn there and look at Ezekiel chapter 40. You'll see that Ezekiel is given a measuring stick and he's told to measure the temple. Now, let me just point out a couple of things that are kind of interesting. When Ezekiel is told by God to measure the temple, there was no temple at that time when Ezekiel was alive at that time and was told to measure the temple. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians three years prior. So he was told to measure a temple that didn't exist. He's in a vision and he's been told by God and he sees this temple and he's told to measure it and he does and he gives us the dimensions and all. Actually, if you go back and look, you'll see that the temple that Ezekiel's told to measure, measure is the millennial temple that's going to be built and during, be inhabited by God himself during the millennial kingdom. But when John is told to measure the temple here in Revelation chapter 11, there's no temple in Israel then either. You see, because Solomon's temple was the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then Ezekiel was told to measure a temple that didn't exist, but it's a future one. And now, now John, remember, Revelation was written around 95 AD, and the temple didn't exist when John was told to measure this one either. Because Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So it had been 25 years that there was no temple, yet John's told to measure a temple that doesn't exist and if you look closely, you'll see that this temple that he's told to measure is the temple that's going to be there during the tribulation period. This is the temple that the Antichrist is going to step into and declare himself to be God, putting an end to the sacrifice. Now, I also need to point out a couple other things here. What is he told to measure? Look closely at this, at this passage. What's he told to measure? The temple, the altar, and what else? The people who worship there. Now, hang on for a second. We can see measuring the height and the width and the depth or whatever of the temple and maybe even the altar, but how do you measure people? Count them. I'm sorry? Actually, it's not counting them. Have you ever heard the term, that person doesn't measure up? Actually, you're going to see that this measurement isn't really as much to do with dimensions, but having to do with spiritual condition. You see, even though there'll be a temple in Israel that the Antichrist steps in and declares himself to be God, will Israel be right with God because they've got a temple? No, and you're going to see that he's told to measure the temple and the altar and everybody that worships there, the Jews. They're going to be found wanting in this measurement. And that's why God is going to send his two witnesses and they're going to prophesy for three and a half years there in Jerusalem, specifically to the nation of Israel, for three and a half years. And how are they clothed? They're clothed in sackcloth. So if the temple and the altar and all those who worship there are measured, and God sends his two witnesses clothed in sackcloth to preach to them, how'd they measure up? They didn't measure up well. What I want to do is I want to just 
I've taken chapter 11 and kind of put it down into a recap form because there's a lot I want to cover in the time we have left tonight. So I want to keep moving. These two are clothed in sackcloth. And I want you to turn real quick to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, and and it'll help you understand even further what this means. If you actually do a study of being clothed in sackcloth, you'll see that it's tied to an attitude of repentance. When the nation of uh, Nineveh was told that so many days and then they're going to be destroyed by God, they all repented and clothed themselves in sackcloth. They even put their animals in sackcloth. Uh, By the way, I don't see a whole lot of you ladies here tonight dressed in sackcloth. Why do women typically not wear sackcloth when they go out? (laughs) You won't look good, will you? Actually, we have a tendency sometimes to wear clothing that makes people say, I like your outfit. You look nice. But when you dressed yourself in sackcloth, you were having an attitude of brokenness, humility, repentance. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 20 and 21. Then he, meaning Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not what? Repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. These two witnesses are standing in Jerusalem, and for three and a half years they're preaching to a nation that has been measured and found wanting, and the temple has been found wanting, and the altar has been found wanting and lacking, and they're dressed in sackcloth. Folks, don't think for a second that if you go to a building, you're fine with God. We can see here that these people were going to a building, and God says, you're still lacking. And we've even seen him say that to the church all through the first two chapters of Revelation, didn't he? I know your deeds. <laughs> you think you're okay, but you're not. And I just challenge each of you to make sure that you are daily listening to the Spirit as He continually measures us on a daily basis. Thank God for His grace, and He's declared us righteous, but He's still in that process of conforming us into His image. And how do we measure up? They're not only clothed in sackcloth, they're described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, why in the world are they described as that? Well, say it again. If you read the Old Testament, you would say, I've seen this before. And actually, it's kind of cool. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 3 and then jump down to verses 11 through 14. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and another on its left. Now jump down to verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So at this time that Zechariah is given this vision, there's a whole lot more to this vision than I have time to get into tonight. But he sees these two olive trees and he says, what are these two olive trees? And, 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 and the angel says, you don't know? And I love it. His answer is, no, I don't. Was he scolded for not knowing? No, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. 
That's one of my best answers when people ask me Bible questions. Don't know. But I'll dig in. Hope to find out. But he's told these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Go back to Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 4. These two witnesses that are to come in the future, because these things must take place. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So these, whoever these two individuals are, we're going to try to deal with who they are tonight. Whoever these two witnesses are, they've been around for a while because they've been standing before God. At least Zechariah saw them in his day. All right. We also see from Revelation chapter 11 that fire comes from their mouths. They can stop the rain. They can turn the waters into blood. They can strike the earth with plagues. All this stuff's going to be important down the road, so stick with me. Amazingly, though, after three and a half years of their ministry, the beast, or the Antichrist, is allowed to kill them. And their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days as the world celebrates and gives each other gifts because they're dead. Isn't that kind of funny? These two witnesses who have been preaching repentance to the nation of Israel, and of course the whole world seeing at the same time, who have been preaching repentance for three and a half years have been such an annoyance to everybody that when they're killed, the whole world celebrates and actually starts giving each other gifts because of it. By the way, this is also one of those things that over the years has helped me really understand that when something doesn't make sense in the Scriptures, and I don't see how it could work, but the Bible doesn't say it's symbolic, but the Bible acts like it's literal. I need to believe it because in time it will make sense. You see, when I was a young kid studying the scriptures many years ago, I'm 50 years old. I read how these two witnesses are going to be killed and how the whole world watched. And everybody in the world saw this and gave each other gifts. And I remember as a kid thinking, well, that's not possible. How in the world could the whole world see that? But nowadays, we could all watch it right now, couldn't we? What didn't make any sense, well, it must be symbolic. No, the Bible didn't say it was symbolic. The Bible acted like it was going to happen. Guess what? In time, now it makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? So there's other things here in Revelation that we don't understand. And you're going to see it as we get into the seventh seal and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. There are going to be some amazing things that are still yet to happen. And there are some things that we're going to have to say, I don't fully understand how that's all going to play out. But God said it will, and one day it will make sense. Take it literally. After the three and a half days, though, they come back to life, terrifying the people who see it. And a voice from heaven calls them up, and they are raptured in sight of everyone. Look again what the voice says there in verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Does anybody remember another come up here? No, not Isaiah. I'm sorry? Good for you. Tuesday night, sat there going, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I thought, i got to start over. You kept us from starting over. Thank you. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Remember how we started this whole study? At the end of the church age. Remember, John was told to write about three things we saw from Revelation chapter 1. What he saw, what is, and what will take place after this. 
He wrote about what he saw, which is his vision of Jesus on the earth. Then he wrote the two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of what is in the church age. And look at Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which was Jesus on the earth, said what? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And like I've tried to teach you, this is a picture of the rapture of the church. Because after the church age, the church is gathered up. Jesus says, come up here. And everything from that point on, John sees from a grandstand view over the earth. He's watching all these things and seeing them happen in visions and seeing the things on the earth. Jesus said, come up here. Do you believe, by the way, that at this point in the tribulation period when the two witnesses are killed and their bodies lay there for three and a half days that all of a sudden God's going to put life back into them and they're going to stand back up? Do you believe that God's going to say, come up here, and everybody's going to hear that voice, and they're just going to watch them ascend? Then believe that there's going to be a rapture of the church where Jesus says to us, come up here. And some people have said, Jim, well, does this mean that the rapture is at the midpoint of the tribulation? Actually, I don't believe so for lots of reasons. We're not being raptured at the same time as these two witnesses. What does the Bible say about our rapture? It's going to happen what? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The Bible doesn't say that the world will watch us be raptured. It's going to happen just like that. But these, it's a slow rapture. Everybody watches them go up, and they're terrified. And then the earthquake happens, and all these people are killed, and the people give glory to God. Our rapture is different, but I just remind you of come up here so that you'll believe he's going to say it to us as well. We're going to go be with him, and that's going to be an awesome thing. There was a great earthquake while this is happening, and a tenth of Jerusalem crumbles. 7,000 people in Jerusalem die because of the earthquake, and the rest of the people give glory to God. Now, in the time that we have left here tonight, I want to answer two questions. When is their ministry? When are the two witnesses going to do their ministry? And who are these two witnesses? That's what we hope to accomplish tonight in the time that we have left. The first question again, when is their ministry? I'm going to tell you right now, it cannot begin at the midpoint of the tribulation and carry on in the second half. It can't be starting at the midpoint. Can anybody tell me why? I'm sorry? That's part of it. Israel is told to flee at the midpoint. When they see the Antichrist step in the wing of the temple, they're told to get out. So preaching to the nation of Israel doesn't really work. But there's other reasons why. Keep going. I'm sorry? What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is going to be leaving, but not leaving. But he's going to leave in his activity through the church at the rapture of the church. But the Holy Spirit will still be on the earth, but not working like he is now. No. I'm going to give you a little help. It has to do with math. There's three and a half years of their ministry, and then what? Then there's still three and a half days of them laying in the streets. You see, there's not enough days for it to start at the midpoint for them to carry over because they'll run out of days. And on top of that, look at verse 14 again. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. There's still stuff going to happen after this happens. So it can't be that it starts at the midpoint of the tribulation and carries over into the second half because there's not enough days for that to happen. All right? 
I'm going to tell you that I really believe that their ministry starts at the beginning of the tribulation. Listen closely. It could begin at some point after the beginning of the tribulation. Some people speculate as to the fact that these are two individuals that are going to be saved from the preaching of the 144,000 witnesses that go out, and, and they're going to be God's witnesses. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. If that is true, uh, they, they can't start their ministry in the first day of the tribulation period because they have to get saved first and then begin. And so... But because of who they are, I believe, and I'm going to show you from Scripture who I think they are, and I'm going to show you a lot of Scripture tonight as to who I think they are. Because of that, I, I think that these two witnesses are going to begin at the beginning of the tribulation period. They're going to go to the midpoint. The Antichrist is going to step into the temple, declare himself to be God. He's going to kill the two witnesses. All is evidence that he's the one to be worshipped. And they're going to lay in three and a half days, and then God's going to bring them up. Now, let's really get to what you really want to know about. Because you really don't care a whole lot as much as to when their ministry is, as much as you want to know who are they, right? Let me give you the Bible answer. We don't know. Have a good night. Thanks for coming. No, actually, we don't know, but I believe that the Bible has told us who they are. And I can't wait. I'll be honest with you. As much fun as I've had preaching and teaching all that we've looked at tonight... I can't wait to show you this. I've been looking forward to this part of the study. I can't wait. For years, people have said that it was Enoch and they're Enoch and Elijah. You ever heard that? And, and their theological reasoning is from Hebrews 9:27, it says, it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. You know what I'm talking about. And so, well, how many of you have ever heard that? Their reasoning is Enoch and Elijah are the only two that didn't die, right? And since it's appointed for man once to die, they have to come back to the earth and die. Let me just tell you, that's horrible theology. Let me give you an example of why, a couple of reasons why. One, how many of you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church? All right. Will those people die? No, if we're alive at the time of the rapture, we're going to not die. We're going to be caught up and go be with the Lord, kind of like Enoch and Elijah did. Are we going to have to come back and die? Because if you're going to go with, you got to come back and die, you got a problem. Plus, if it's appointed for man once to die, how do you deal with Lazarus? How many times did Lazarus die? At least twice. At least twice. <laughs> oh, let me give you another one. Enoch wasn't even a Jew. Enoch actually might be a picture of the Gentile rapture. I believe... And I'm going to show you from Scripture. And again, let me just tell you, I will never tell you this is what I think it is unless I really believe the Bible backs it up. There's lots of stuff I think. You'll never hear it. But if I believe the Bible backs it up, I will tell you, that, tell you honestly, I believe without question that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And I think the Bible has been showing us this all along. And let me show you some things God began to show me in this process. Go with me to James chapter 5 and look at verse 17. Remember, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 11 that they have the ability to stop the rain. Folks, I, this verse that I'm going to read to you, I have read it, I've preached on it, I've taught on it, and I've never seen what I saw until I was preparing for this study. In James chapter 5 verse 17, look at what it says. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, 
it did not rain on the earth. Does anybody see it? I've never seen that before. How about you, James? I knew he preached and said it wouldn't rain. And I knew it was around three years. And I even went back in the study and back when this all happened, it never says how long. But in James 5, 17, it tells us exactly how long. Three and a half years, it didn't rain. You want to talk about foreshadowing? Oh, go back with me to Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And how many days do they prophesy? I think God already gave us a glimpse in James 5, 17 that Elijah is going to be one of them. Oh, there's so much more. Hang on. Moses. Does anybody remember anything about Moses and what God did through Moses? Something to do with rivers turning to blood and plagues. Yeah, exactly. Actually, he did step foot into the Mount of Transfiguration, which we're going to see in just a little bit. But he's God through him did all the things that we read about here in Revelation chapter 11 that these two witnesses are going to do. Now, again, I don't have the time to get into this, but those of you that bought Tony's book on things that must take place in there, he lays out for you the fact that if you go back and look at the plagues in Egypt, they parallel exactly what God's going to do during the tribulation period. The things that he did in the plagues to get the attention of the nation of Egypt, he's going to do the exact same things in the tribulation period to get attention to the nation of Israel and the world. They parallel exactly. But there's more. Go to Luke chapter 9. Go to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 31. It says, Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. When Jesus, right before the cross, is transfigured in his glory, his godness showed through his flesh. Who appeared there on the mountain with him? Moses and Elijah. But don't miss this. They're talking with him about what's going to soon take place in Jerusalem at his departure. There's a few things here I want to pull out that are kind of cool. One, they knew what was going on. They weren't oblivious. Folks, let me just tell you something. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. For those of us who are in Christ, those who are separated from Christ, they go to a place of torment called Hades. And they're there until the great white throne judgment when they stand before God and then ultimately cast into the lake of fire. But for those who are in Christ, who have been given righteousness, even the Old Testament saints, they are with him now. They don't get their new bodies. The Old Testament saints don't get their new bodies till at the end of the tribulation period. We in the church will get our new bodies right before the tribulation period at the rapture of the church when we get our new bodies at that time. But... The Old Testament saints and the believers in Christ who are in the church are with him right now. And listen, I believe the Bible shows us that they know what's going on. The Bible talks about how we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses. And since we are, we to run the race like they're watching. And people have said, wait a minute, Jim. I like the idea and I don't like the idea. Because 
if my loved ones are in heaven and they can see what's going on, how could they have joy in heaven with all the bad stuff that's happening? Let me help you picture it a little bit more. You're still trying to picture looking at this life from this life. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Have you ever been through something that was horrible at the time, but then a few years down the road, you look back and you say, I'm so glad it happened. Anybody ever had that happen? All of us have. Keep in mind, these two guys are talking with Jesus about what's going to happen in the future. They already can see down the road. Your loved ones who are in heaven, if they're able to see us, which I believe the Bible says they are. Remember, whenever people were, by God's grace, allowed to come back and talk to people, Samuel did and others, they would say, here's what's going to happen to you down the road. They knew what was about to happen. If our loved ones in heaven are able to see, they don't freak out when they see us suffer because they see the good that's going to come of it. And they're probably up there saying, I know you're hurting right now, but this is actually going to be for the good. And I'm glad this is happening because I see what it's going to produce. You see it? They're looking at it totally different from how we look at it. Because we're on this side where we don't know how it's going to play out. But we should, well, I don't want to get into my cruise messages just yet. But we should believe that God's going to cause all things to work for good for those who love him. And are called according to his purpose. There's more to this than that. Go to Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The last thing that they heard from God through his prophets before the 400 years of silence, before John the Baptist came on the scene. In Malachi chapter 4, it says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. So the last thing the nation of Israel heard from God was, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the day that he comes and sets up his kingdom, I'm going to send you Elijah. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Now, some people say, wait a minute, Jim. Wasn't that John the Baptist? And I'm going to say yes and no. Let me explain what I mean by this. Go to Luke chapter 1. Verses 13 through 17. In Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, uh, Gabriel is telling Zechariah about the fact that Elizabeth is going to give birth. And it says in verse 13, But the angel said to Zechariah, said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Did you catch that? Zechariah is told, you're to name him John. 
But he's going to go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Almost word for word, the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. So they were told that Elijah is going to come before Jesus sets up his kingdom. He's going to come. And then John, Zechariah is told, you're going to have a son and you're naming John and he's going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew's account of the transfiguration starts to put everything together for us. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his, his brother, and he led him up, them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because we love our buildings. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, look closely, and he will restore all things. By the way, at this point, is John the Baptist alive or dead when Jesus says this? He's dead. So he says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Future. But I tell you, Jesus says, that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi of Elijah? Partially, but not ultimately. You see, if the nation of Israel had responded to the preaching of John the Baptist, John the Baptist would have fulfilled the Elijah prophecy. But God kind of knows his kids. They were given an opportunity and they rejected it. And they rejected the Messiah. And so he did come because John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah with the same purpose, but they didn't listen. But Jesus says, oh, he's still going to come. And he's going to restore all things. I think from all the scriptural evidence, and there's more, but we're not going to kill you with it, and I want to let you go home tonight. I think the Bible shows us that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. As a quick little aside, if you do a study about Moses' death, you'll find that they never found his body. He died, but the book of Jude tells us that the archangel Michael was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. Why would Satan care? Why wouldn't he just say, good riddance? Glad that guy's dust again. He's been a pain in my side. 
Why would Satan fight with the Michael over the body of Moses? Because he knows the prophecies. And I think those two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah, and God's going to bring them back in this time on this planet in Jerusalem during that time to preach to the nation of Israel dressed in sackcloth for three and a half years. The Bible's been showing us this all along. Now, let me close by saying this. Who they are is really not as important as what their role was. Whoever they are, because Jim Johnson could be wrong. I know I expected the room to be sucked out with air from all the gasping, but Jim Johnson could be wrong. And if I'm wrong and these aren't who they are, it doesn't really matter. But their role is what's important. And what was, what's their role? God's going to be speaking through them as to the nation of Israel's need of repentance and reconciliation with God. Remember, the nation of Israel was measured and found wanting, and the temple was measured, and the altar was measured, and they thought they were okay because we got our temple back, and we're doing the sacrifices again. We're good. No, you're not. The message has always been the same all along. From the beginning, it's been by grace through faith. And they're going to preach repentance. They're going to preach about who Jesus really is, that he's coming again. As John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus, I believe Elijah himself is going to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. But what was their role again? They're going to be preaching to the nation of Israel to have them get right before God through repentance and reconciliation. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll close with this passage tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Second Corinthians 5, verse 18 and following. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see it? We can sit here and get all fat and happy and puffed up with our knowledge of who the two witnesses are and totally miss the purpose of their ministry and then totally miss the fact that we have been given a similar ministry in our day, have we not? Now, we're not to stand on the street's corner dressed in sackcloth unless God tells us to. But we're to go out and we're to be sharing with everyone because we're as ambassadors. We're to be telling people that same message it's not by going to church and giving sacrifices or giving money to the church or doing good deeds that you're right before God, but it's by His grace through faith. God, listen closely to the message. God was in Christ reconciling who? According to this passage. Keep reading. Look at verse 18. I mean 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Don't miss this. The gospel is not that God's mad at sinners, but if they ask him to forgive them, he'll forgive them and change his mind toward them. The gospel is, for God so loved the world, he gave his son. At the moment that Jesus died, he paid for the sins of the entire world. They've been forgiven. Whether they receive this forgiveness or not is between them and God. Our message is, Jesus has already paid for your sin. And all you have to do is receive this offering, this gift. The Bible says in Matthew that there's a sin called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says, the only sin not forgiven. You see, Jesus died for the sins of the world, and at that moment, the sins of the world were forgiven. God's not counting their trespasses against them. Don't hear me wrong. That doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. Now we need to go out and share with them this good news. Jesus paid for your sin, and the Spirit of God is going to draw you. John chapter 6, verse 44, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. And the only sin not covered by the death of Jesus is when the Spirit of God draws you, and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit or reject the Holy Spirit and His offer of salvation. Our message is God loves you and he's already paid for your sin and you need to just acknowledge your need of a savior and give your life to Jesus and say, Lord, you paid for my sin, not yours. Thank you for this gift. We're his ambassadors. Just like the two witnesses are going to stand in Jerusalem and say the same message, we've been given that message now to preach to the people. Oh, and let me wrap with this awesome verse here, verse 21. We all probably could quote it, but look closely at what it's saying. For our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? Well, then how did he become sin? The Bible says he became sin. How did he become sin? How? God what? So you're saying God imputed to Jesus the sins of the whole world. He didn't never sin, but God put all sin on him. Right? Oh, this word gets good. How many of you, apart from Jesus, are righteous? Then how can you be righteous? It's imputed to us. The same way God took sin and put it on Jesus, and he never sinned. Those of us who are not righteous, God just puts it on us. Isn't that awesome? I like that. And that's a good message to go share with people. Between now and when he says, come up here, tell it to as many people as God gives you the opportunity. And whether they listen or not, don't worry about that. It's not your job to convince them. If they say, eh, I don't believe it, you're not doing a bad job. Your job's just to scatter the seed. Let God take it from there. When we come back together in a week, we might be in chapter 13 again, but we might not. See you then. Thanks for coming.